y'all I dumped coffee all over my Bible back there and my notes so we can add that to the spit and beer and all that stuff that's been thrown at me when I've been preaching and got some stains on my Bible from that I guess that's all right okay all right good morning nice to be back with y'all after a little bit of a break here. Um, before we get started, a couple of things. Um, I don't know why, but every time I hear that hymn we just sung, I'm reminded of a, an incident in American history. It was in May of 1863 uh, during the height of the Civil War and Confederate General uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson had been accidentally shot by his own men. Uh, during the Battle of Chancellorsville and he had to have his arm amputated and the bullets removed and he contracted pneumonia and he laid sick for some months and then finally passed away in May of that year and in the last hours of his life as he laid in that little house there in Northern Virginia he was going in and out of consciousness and seemed to be really struggling physically and sweating profusely and he was calling out things that sometimes made sense and other times it didn't make sense and it, he seemed to be giving his troops orders in battle and seemed to be saying things that indicated he was in the midst of some sort of a battle and at the end of his life in the midst of all of this he just paused and they say a look of peace came over his face and his whole tenor changed and his last words weren't battle cries or orders or anything showing a struggle, he paused, his facial expression changed, and he said these words, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And then he passed away. And I can't help, can't help but think of a day when we'll be able to cross over the river, away from all this technology, away from all this dependence, away from all the chaos that is our society and the world today, and just rest under the shade of the trees. Something as simple as the rest that our first parents had in the Garden of Eden. Jackson was one of uh, the godliest men in all of American history, in my opinion. He was a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as God delivered him from that time of war and trial and tribulation, we look to be delivered. We look for that day in the sweet by and by when we can cross the river and rest under the shade of the trees. No houses, no Homeowner's insurance, no cars, no jobs, no careers, but just rest. So I always think about that when I hear that hymn. I don't know why, but uh, it reminds me of, of Jackson's last words. If you ever study famous people in history, you know there's a lot of them whose last words are recorded. And you see a distinct difference in the last words of godly people who were followers of Christ versus those who hated Christ or boasted in the things of this world or died in their sins. It's an amazing thing uh, to see the differences and the fear and all of those things that get paired with those who know not Christ versus those that do. 
Then another thing I wanted to share um, kind of as an introductory to our continuing discussion is that as I've been looking at the different feasts uh, that God gave to Israel, these are tied directly to what we're talking about concerning the rapture, I found a couple of things very interesting. Now there's a lot of folks out here, uh, and I understand people have different convictions, and I praise God for the liberty that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there was a, 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 one of the early church fathers once said in, in matters of essential matters, we should have unity. In non-essential matters, uh, we should have liberty. And in all things, we should have love. And that's the way it should be. And, and there's great liberty in the body of Christ for some and others there's not liberty. But there's folks out there that make a big deal about Christmas and want to attach it to, to pagan things and accuse anyone who sings a Christmas hymn at his Christmas time or would say Merry Christmas or anything like that, associating themselves with paganism. And There's no way Jesus Christ could have been born December 25th and all of this and that. And in actuality, Jesus Christ probably was born around the end of December. If He wasn't born at the end of December, He would have been conceived at the end of December. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but... Um, one of the early church fathers from around 200 A.D. Uh, who was from Rome, and he spoke out against the Nicolaitanism that was arising in the churches, the separating of the clergy from the laity and the dividing of the clergy into ranks. He wrote more than 100 years before Constantine. Constantine's the one that married the paganism with the official state church of Rome. He wrote that... The birthday of Christ was what translates to December 25th. I find that very interesting. Um, and if you look at the priestly courses that are laid out in the Old Testament, and then you look at Zacharias, who was the priest, in his course, and you can trace that down, and an argument can be made that Zacharias was in his course at that time of the year. And you've got to ask yourself, why is it that the inns were full and there was no room for Mary and Joseph? Is it simply because of the taxing? Or were the Romans smart enough to know that if we're going to tax the Jewish people, let's do it at a time when they're having a festival and they're coming from all over the place and we'll make sure to get their money. So it's funny how toward, you know, a lot of times in December we have the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. Okay, that's not a feast that God gave Israel. It's something that happened between Malachi and Matthew. And if the Feast of Dedication was going on, there would have been a whole lot of people in the area of Jerusalem and therefore no room in the inn. Also, the shepherds, people say, well, they couldn't have been in the fields during the wintertime. Well, that's a foolish statement because there were what were called Levitical shepherds, Levites whose job was to tend the flocks that were used for the daily sacrifices in the temple. So these flocks had to be cared for all year long. These were Levitical shepherds. Now does it not make sense that the Levitical shepherds who were in charge of the sacrifice lambs would have been the ones that the angels announced the birth of the true sacrifice lamb to? So yeah, they would have been in the fields. Um, I find it interesting that Jesus actually fulfills the feast listed in Leviticus chapter 23 that God gives to Israel. And we're going to talk about that um, Four of those feasts have already been fulfilled and we're waiting, awaiting the three to be fulfilled. And at the, in the time of late September, early October is what the Jewish people call the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is where uh, Israel would stop their work and they would come to Jerusalem and they would dwell in tents 
to remember that God dwelt with them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so Jesus, when He comes back to earth and sets up His kingdom, actually fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, it kind of makes sense that perhaps Jesus also, His first advent would have been at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that would have been around October 3rd or 4th in 4 B.C. And if that's the case, then that means Jesus would have been conceived nine months earlier. And that would have made him being conceived around December 25th. So whether or not you believe that, that Jesus was born in December or born in the Feast of Tabernacles, an argument can be made for either one in terms of the priestly courses. The end of December was a time or a period in time that was significant with regard to the incarnation of Christ. I just think that's interesting. Uh, to make the argument that it's wrong to have anything to do with cultural festivals or feasts would be to accuse Jesus of sin because Jesus went down to Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, which was Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not a biblical feast. And He used it as an opportunity to go down there and declare the Word of God. So at best, even though Christmas is so secular and New Year's is so secular in our society, we don't associate with those things, but we can use these things as an opportunity to declare the true gift of God, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. So I find it funny how people get so legalistic about stuff sometimes and they don't even take time to, to study out the Scriptures and see that people didn't just randomly think one day, okay, let's make Christmas December 25th. There was a reason for it. Just like there was a reason for all the dates James Usher put in his uh, Chronology of the World, that great text that was written a couple hundred years ago. There was a reason why he thought creation took place in October and not any other month of the year. That's when the Jewish Civil New Year begins, Rosh Hashanah. And that, that calendar is based upon Jewish tradition that says that creation took place at Rosh Hashanah, the new year. So those things aren't random, and I find them interesting. And just a couple of things that I thought about as I was studying uh, for this week's message. So, um, but we need to be like those who were in the days that Jesus was born. The lesson here is let's be like Simeon and Anna. Let's be like Zacharias and Elizabeth. Let's be like the shepherds and the wise men who knew about the coming Messiah, and we're waiting for Him. That is the spirit of the Incarnation. He came once, He's come again. And that's not something you do one day out of a year. That's not something you do one month out of a year. That ought to be our expectation, our expectancy all year long. So that really ought to be the lesson we take from this. Um, turn in your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 4. And um, we're going to continue our discussion that I began a couple weeks ago. Here we see John at a specific place in the book called up to heaven. He sees a door in heaven and a voice that says, Come up here. And then immediately he is in the throne room of God in the Spirit. And we talked about how this is a type of the rapture of the church. It happens at the spot in Revelation where the rapture takes place in human history. At the end of the church age, letters to the seven churches, and then before the tribulation period. 
uh, the time of God's wrath. And so here we have the letters to the seven churches, the things which are, concludes at the end of chapter 3. John is caught up into heaven and God shows him the things which will be after, hereafter, after what? the church age. So we have a picture of the rapture. And I thought this was an ideal place to stop and consider what the Scriptures have to say about the rapture of the church. It's fact and it's timing. There's a lot of people debate. Some folks that claim the name of Christ mock this doctrine. Some say it's not biblical. Some say it'll happen after the tribulation. Some erroneously claim that it'll happen before, uh, in the middle of the tribulation. And that believers will uh, uh, suffer the wrath of God for a time. And then I believe that the Scriptures teach a pre-tribulational rapture at the end of the church age and prior to the period of judgment which the Jews call the birth pangs of the Messiah, Daniel's 70th week. And so I began to share with you uh, the scriptural teaching on these things. We looked at the key passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. It talks about believers meeting the Lord in the air which is something different than His second coming because at the second coming, His foot sets down on the earth. It splits the Mount of Olives in half. And so to deny, to say that the rapture takes point at that place in time would mean that we are caught up with the Lord to make an immediate U-turn and come right back to earth. It doesn't seem to make sense. We looked at the pronoun change there um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, how Paul, in talking about the believer in us, uh, teaches the rapture, and then when he starts to talk about judgment, he talks about them, someone else. We looked at the other key passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where the rapture is called a mystery. We talked about what a mystery is in terms of Old Testament prophecy. Um, the rapture is a mystery. The Old Testament prophets saw a return to Christ to earth with His saints, but they didn't see His coming in the air for His saints. We talked about those mountain peaks of prophecy and the valley of the church and how the Old Testament prophets weren't able to discern that. And then we looked at uh, a few passages in the New Testament where the church is promised to be delivered from God's wrath. Through Christ we are saved from God's wrath. The purpose of the tribulation is to judge Israel and wake them up and to pour out God's wrath upon the Gentiles. That's the whole purpose of the tribulation. So if the church has been spared from God's wrath, as it says right there in 1 Thessalonians in that rapture context, then it makes sense that the rapture would have to be before these things. Uh, some people say, well, you know, the New Testament promises us that we're going to suffer trials and tribulation, and therefore we have to be here during the tribulation. And Folks do err not knowing the Scripture when they make this argument because they don't understand the difference between the wrath of wicked men and the devil and the wrath of God. We as Christians today experience the wrath of wicked men. We suffer the wrath of the devil and persecution from the devil, but the tribulation is the wrath of God. He uses wicked men, He uses the devil, but this is wrath from God. In fact, in that time, Satan is kicked out of heaven and he's really angry. And God's wrath works through him in a way the world has never seen. But Christians are not the objects of God's wrath. And so these things point to a pre-tribulational rapture. I want to talk about some other scriptural evidences today we didn't get into. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Paul here talking about the rise of Antichrist and the period of tribulation has something very interesting to say in contrasting the present time in which the Thessalonians were living with this time of tribulation. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says this. He's talking about... Uh, let's, let's, go back, uh, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that's what the rapture is, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is at hand. The Thessalonians were afraid that they were living in that day of the Lord, that day of God's judgment, called the day of Christ here, the apocalypse. In fact, some had claimed Paul had taught that. And Paul makes the claim here, you know, if you've been told that I've said this or written a letter about it, don't, don't be troubled, I haven't. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, shall not come except there come a falling away first. Do we see that falling away? What is that? A departure from the truth. Apostasy. Do we see that in the church today? A great apostasy? That has to come first. And then that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's Antichrist who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay? Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And then verse 6, And now you know what withholdeth that he, that is Antichrist, might be revealed in his time. So Paul says, look, now there's something that withholds or restrains. And you know what it is. And that keeps Antichrist from coming on the scene. It's a restrainer. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only He who now letteth will let. That word let means to restrain or to withhold. Until He, that is the restrainer, be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. So what we learn here is that there is a restrainer who keeps the ropes, holds the ropes on evil. Evil can only progress so far when there is a restrainer, one who holds it back, that is present. It's interesting because in verse 6, this word, what withholds, is in the neuter. And then in verse 7, it's personal, it's masculine. So it's a force and a person. What do you think this is referring to? What do you think Paul is referring to? That which restrains evil. And the Antichrist cannot come onto the scene until the restrainer is taken out of the way. Who is it that restrains evil in this world? The Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 8, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, He will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will reprove the world. The testimony of the Holy Spirit today, outside the indwelling of the believer, is to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the neuter sense as represented in verse 6. What withholdeth? The indwelling Holy Spirit that lives within the believer 
is a light or a testimony to the world of God's truth. That personal indwelling through the church is also a restrainer. The personal indwelling of the Spirit is in verse 7. He who now letteth. And so the force of the Holy Spirit and His person is what restrains evil. In fact, it's interesting to to see how even in this wicked country, such a wicked nation in so many ways, there are a lot more Christians than there are in other places. And therefore, even in society, you see chaos and evil restrained in a way that it's not restrained in some of these third world countries where there's very little Christian witness. Go to a place like Nepal and just look at the electrical wires running on the telephone poles down the street. Look at the chaos and the traffic, the unsanitary conditions, all of these things. Evil isn't restrained there in the way it's restrained here. Make no mistake, America is wicked. It has the truth and it's turned its back. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for places like Nepal and India in the Day of Judgment. But the Holy Spirit is a restrainer. And when the the, uh, Antichrist cannot come on the scene until the restrainer is taken out of the way. And so if the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is to be taken out of the world and He indwells the believer, the church, it only, the only way that can happen is if the church is taken out of the world. Because the Holy Spirit can't be taken from the believer, but He must be taken out of the way for the Antichrist to come on the scene and for evil, the floodgates of evil to be opened. And so therefore the church has to be removed. And I find it very interesting in chapter 4, verse 5, here in Revelation, in the throne room of God, you'll see in chapter 5 that the church is there, but in verse 5, the Holy Spirit is there. He's not on the earth. In chapter 4, verse 5, John says that um, out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God is in heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation, because he's been taken out of the way. Now, some people say that the restrainer mentioned in 2 Thessalonians is human government. And when human government is removed, then the Antichrist can come on the scene. Well, that doesn't make sense because human government is the tool whereby Antichrist comes to power. It's a ten-nation federation and he overthrows three kings and comes onto the scene. So human government is the means by where he comes to power. And so the absence of the Holy Spirit during the time of tribulation points to a pre-tribulational rapture and necessitates the removal of the church from the earth. More scriptural evidence. Let's look at Matthew chapter 24. This is Jesus' great Olivet Discourse. Uh, He talks about the last days during this time of tribulation. And I want you to notice something in verse 31 talks about His second coming, the appearance of the Son of Man in the heaven. He'll send His angels with the great sound of a trumpet and shall gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the elect are gathered when Christ comes, not from the earth, but from the heaven, from one end of heaven. Why? Because the church is in heaven. With Christ. They are gathered, mounted on white horses, and they return just like Enoch prophesied in the book of Jude, just like Revelation 19 describes, on white horses in white raiment with the king at the head of the host. 
The elect are gathered from heaven and then the Son of Man comes because they're in heaven. And then if you look back um, in uh, verses 30, or you go forward to verses 39 through 41, Jesus is talking about how in the last days it'll be like the days of Noah. People are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. The flood came, judgment came, took them away. And then Jesus said that two shall be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the stone, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour the Lord doth come. Some people would say, well, taken means taken to judgment. Jesus is going to come back and one person is going to be swept away to judgment. One person is going to be left to enjoy the millennial kingdom. This One person is going to be grinding and swept away to judgment, just like the people were swept away when the flood came. However, this is not the sense in which taken away is used with the two people in the field and the two people at the grinding saw. It's a different word in the Greek. This is one of those places where the Greek really does shed some light. And we've talked about this in here on the text. When it says the flood came and took them all away, it's the Greek verb, it's a Greek verb that means to sweep or to take away, to sweep away, to cast out. It has an element of judgment. But when you come down to the word, the verb to take in verses 40 through 41, it's the same Greek word that is used in Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph is told to take Mary to be his wife. What does that mean? That means to receive, to bring into yourself. Did the angel not tell Joseph, don't fear to take Mary to be your wife? And so the man in the field will be taken or received. The woman at the mill will be taken or received. And one will be left behind. Left behind to judgment. And so you have the rapture right here in Matthew chapter 24. As seen by the Greek words here. One is taken, received. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. One is left behind to experience the great judgments that are talked about there in the Olivet Discourse. Next we have the whole concept of imminency. The idea that Christ could come as a thief at any time. Okay? If this is a reference, this concept of imminency that pokes up a lot in the Gospels when Jesus talks about His coming to His disciples, if that is referring to to the actual second coming when Christ comes to earth and sets up a kingdom, then we've got a problem. Because the Bible is very clear that the second coming is preceded by very specific signs that can be discerned. In fact, Daniel puts a time frame on it. Days that can be calculated. But Paul instructed the Thessalonians not to worry about signs and times. Because New Testament believers have been promised redemption from the day of darkness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is right after Paul gives us the great rapture rapture passage in chapter 4. Paul talks about them not being worried about the times and seasons, but to watch and be sober. 
The Thessalonians weren't to be looking for the rise of Antichrist. They were to be looking for the redemption of the body in Christ. Signs of Christ's second coming are clear and they can be calculated. So the only way Christ could come like a thief in the night is if He comes secretly for His church sometime before the Jewish clock starts ticking again with Daniel's 70th week. And it's funny how when Christ talks about coming as a thief, He often uses the Jewish wedding imagery and the virgins that are waiting for their Lord. Well, who was waiting? It was the bride waiting for the, for the groom to come and steal her away secretly and take her off to the wedding chamber where they would stay for seven days, a honeymoon, before the marriage was made public. And it's interesting how Jesus uses that wedding imagery in John 14. And when you look at a Jewish wedding, we'll talk about this in a minute, there must be a pre-tribulational rapture. It fits perfectly. But the concept of imminency at any moment points to a pre-tribulational catching away of the believer because the second coming can be discerned with signs. But Christ's coming for His church can take place at any time. At any time. Therefore, we're not to be sitting around. It's good to know the signs of the times and to understand that Christ's coming is near. But we don't need to be sitting around worried and consumed with the rise of Antichrist, the one world government, and all of these things that will be in the tribulation. We're not waiting for those things. We're looking for the coming of Christ for His church. That's what we're waiting for. That should compel us. That's the argument that Paul makes there with the Thessalonians. Jesus in John 14 promised His church mansions in heaven. You see, my friends, the church is a heavenly people with a heavenly hope. But at the second coming, Christ comes to set up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. Israel is identified with the earth. The church is identified with heaven. Hosea chapter 2 tells us this. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, it's talking about Israel. God says, And I will sow her, Israel, unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. God will sow Israel in the earth. But what does Jesus say in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If I were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The church is a heavenly people. But at the second coming, Christ comes to set up a kingdom on earth. So Christ coming to receive us in John 14 must be at a different time. I believe that's prior to the tribulation. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18 about the church that He's going to build? What does He promise His disciples? I will build my church and what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church cannot be overcome even by the gates of hell. But look at what Revelation 13 says. Revelation 13, 7 talks about saints on the earth during the tribulation and it was given unto Him that is the beast the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So these tribulation saints are overcome by the beast 
and they're martyred and they're wiped out in large part. But Jesus said the church can't be overcome. So there must be a difference between the church and the tribulation saint. The church can't be overcome because it's not there. It's been taken out. The tribulation saints, the, the gleanings of the harvest, the fruit of the ministry of those Jewish witnesses will be overcome. Some beheaded, martyred, tortured, and their souls will stand before the altar. God, when are you going to avenge our death? But the church cannot be overcome. In 1 Corinthians 15, every saved believer is immediately translated and receives a new resurrection body at the rapture or the, or the translation of the believer. Every saved believer. Yet, when Christ comes back and sets up His kingdom in this parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep are still in their natural bodies and they receive eternal life as a future thing. Eternal life is spoken of as future in that parable of the sheep and the goats. And so, there must be a period of time that takes place between the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 when all believers receive eternal life and the judgment of Christ on His throne in the sheep and the goats when the sheep are given eternal life as they stand there in their natural, natural, natural bodies. Now, if you look at the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's interesting because Jesus says the nations are judged there. He talks about His brethren, the Jewish people, and He's not sitting on His Father's throne. He's sitting on His own throne, which is the throne of David. So the parable of the sheep and the goats is Him in His millennial judgment seat. And the nations that remain on the earth will be judged according to how they treated Israel during the tribulation when Antichrist sought to destroy them. Those nations that harbored Israel will be spared to come into the millennial kingdom. Those that didn't will be destroyed. Nations are judged at the sheep and the goats, not individuals. So you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. But there must be time between the translation of the church receiving their resurrection bodies and the sheep who are then saved and are still in their natural bodies when they are promised or given eternal life. There must be a period of time. A seven year period of tribulation is plenty of time for people to get saved when 144,000 witnesses and street preachers are traveling around the world preaching the gospel. <coughs> And again, I'm just building a case here scripturally for pre-trib rapture. I, don't think, I think we need to understand why we believe these things. 2 Peter. Let's look at 2 Peter for a minute. Here we have a very important principle. You know, God is a God of order. He's a God of dignity and He's a God of consistency. There's things God cannot do. You know, people try to say, well, you know, if God's all-powerful, can He make a rock so big He can't lift it? You know, wanting to mock God. Well, the fact is, God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's almighty. But there are things God cannot do. His nature doesn't allow it. God cannot lie, the Scriptures tell us. God cannot change, the Scriptures tell us. So He is consistent. In fact, He told Israel in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. They were so reprobate and backward 
that God should have consumed them and wiped them out, but because He does not change and because He made a covenant with Abraham, they were not consumed, they were preserved. God doesn't change. And so we can look at the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament and see how God dealt with those that, that trusted in Him. And those principles are consistent. And we can expect God to deal with us in the same way. That's why Paul said we ought to study the Old Testament. Because it shows us these things. It admonishes us. It teaches us. Hebrews 11, we can look at these men of faith and live accordingly and expect God to act consistently toward us as He did toward them. Keeping this in mind, look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2. Talks about Noah and Lot. God spared not, verse 5, the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, the ungodly. So God saved Noah out of the judgment of the flood. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should after live ungodly. And delivered just, just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Look at verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God's always delivered the godly out of judgment and reserves the wicked for the day of judgment and justice. We saw it with Noah. We saw it with Enoch. We see it with Lot. It makes sense that God would act consistently. The principle is given there for our comfort, for our encouragement, for our steadfastness. God will deliver us. So the principle applies. If God's going to be consistent, He'll pull us out. Just like He pulled Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it's really interesting when you see what the angels say in Genesis chapter 19 when Lot's piddling around and taking his time to get out of the city. Look what is communicated here. In chapter 19 of Genesis, verse 22, the angel says, basically, Haste thee, hurry up! What are you doing? Escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. The angel says, hurry it up. I can't do anything till you're out of here. They couldn't do anything until Lot and his family was gone. So God had to get Lot out because of this principle of God's character before the fire rained down from heaven. Even Lot messing around didn't cause him to be caught up in it. They, the angels couldn't act until Lot was delivered. In the same way, Antichrist cannot arise. The wrath, the seals cannot be broken. The trumpet judgments can't come until we're out of here. It's the character of God throughout all of history. And it would apply here. It all comes together. All of these evidences come together to build a strong case. Not one stands on its own, but taken together, we can have faith in our doctrine as biblical. And then here toward the end, I wanted to just, we've kind of touched on this, but it's very interesting that in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, the church is specifically addressed. And it's mentioned many times. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. But after chapter 3, the church isn't mentioned again until the very end of the book 
when John is transported in the Spirit back to Patmos and the book is concluded. So the church is not mentioned again until Revelation 22.16, although having been repeatedly addressed in the first three chapters. So you have the things which are, John's rapture, the tribulation, church isn't mentioned again until the end of the book when John, Jesus gives concluding admonitions to the church. Now, in Revelation 19, the church is called the wife, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And this is Revelation 19, 7 and 8. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. This is the church in heaven, the wife of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes back, those that come with Him are clothed in that fine linen, verse 14 of chapter 19, that's described and defined here in verse 8. But Israel, the church is the virgin bride. Paul calls it a chaste version in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Israel is the adulterous yet restored wife. Isaiah 54, Hosea 2. Israel's are an adulterous wife who is restored. It's not possible that the church in Israel can be the same, number one, because an adulterous woman can't be a chaste virgin. It's impossible. She can be restored, but she cannot be a chaste virgin. And so, the church did not replace Israel. What God is doing with Israel in the tribulation is restoring His adulterous wife, Israel, while making ready the marriage with His virgin wife, the church. And so you don't have the church mentioned anywhere on earth. And then in chapter 19, you have this marriage supper and this reference to the wife who is the church that Paul calls a chaste virgin in 2 Corinthians 11. And then you have those in white, the righteousness of the saints come with Christ. And then chapter 22, you have the church specifically addressed again. It's interesting that he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We've heard this countless times in the first few chapters of Revelation. But a similar appeal is made in chapter 13 regarding the beast and the mark of the beast. Verse 9, if any man have an ear, let him hear. What's absent? To the churches. Funny. To the churches prior to John's rapture, but after that it's not to the churches, it's to any man. Why? Because the church isn't there. When one of the uh, um, in Revelation chapter nine, there's a judgment that comes. Um, I'm going to make sure that I don't say it is. It's one of the trumpet judgments, and the bottomless pit is open, and these horrid scorpion-like creatures are set forth on the earth to to torment men. And it's funny that when you read this, there's only one group of people that is protected from this torment. It's the Jews who have been sealed by God in their foreheads. So, only the sealed Jews who are protected from the scorpion creatures in Revelation 9. Well, if the church is on the earth, that doesn't really make any sense. That God would seal Jews, but not seal the church. Well, why is it only the Jews that are protected? Because the church isn't there. There's no need to seal them, from, or to protect them from this judgment as God protected uh, 
Israel from some of the plagues in Egypt. The church isn't there. Who does the devil persecute in Revelation 12 when he's cast out of heaven? Does he persecute the church? No, he goes after the woman, Israel. So the devil persecutes Israel, not the church during the tribulation. Why is that? church isn't there. So he's going after Israel, who's of the earth. And then we're going to see here in chapters 4 and 5 that the church is actually in heaven. I've already shown you where the Holy Spirit is there. He's been taken out of the way. And then you'll see when the elders begin to sing their song in chapter 5, that they don't talk in the third person, they talk in the first person. You have redeemed us out of every tribe, tribe tongue, and nation. nation. The church is in heaven. All of these things wrapped up together clearly demonstrate a pre-tribulational rapture, what Titus calls the blessed hope of the believer. And that, my friends, is what we should be looking for. I hope you're encouraged by that. One last thing I think is very interesting when we consider God's plan and purpose for the ages. It's the Jewish wedding. How, did, how was an ancient Jewish wedding conducted? This, thing, this is important because Jesus uses wedding imagery in a lot of His parables and when He's talking to His disciples. The promise He makes to them in John 14 about going to prepare a place for them. That's all wedding imagery. He's drawing... Uh, a comparison or an analogy with a Jewish wedding. So it would behoove us to know what a Jewish wedding is so that we can understand what's going on. And Note how a Jewish wedding traditionally fits the pattern of what Christ is doing with His church. What's the first thing that would happen? The groom would come to the bride's father and he would draw up, they would draw up a marriage covenant and pay the, pay the bride price. So a contract would be drawn up and the bride price would be paid. What happened when Christ came to earth and conducted His earthly ministry? And He proclaimed and preached the covenant and the bride price and let it know what the price would be to purchase a people. It would be His own life. He predicted His own death and resurrection countless times and it happened just like He said. After this covenant is drawn up and the price is agreed upon, what would happen is the, the bride and the, the, uh, the uh, prospective bride and the bridegroom would come together and they would share a cup of wine. The covenant would be drawn up, the bride price would be agreed upon with the father, and then the bridegroom would pour a cup of wine, and the wife, if the contract was, was acceptable, the woman would drink the cup. With the, with the groom, signifying that they were espoused one to another. What did Jesus Christ do with His disciples at the Last Supper? He drank that cup. Signifying that relationship. And He said, I will not drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. What? The covenant He made with His Father to purchase a people, the church, to be His bride. And I won't drink of this cup again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So you have the cup... Then what happens? The groom, before once this espousal takes place through the cup, the groom gives gifts to the bride. And then he goes off to prepare a place for them, for the, the new couple. And he's gone for a time. But he gives gifts to the bride. 
What did Christ do for His church when He left to go and prepare a place for them? Gave them gifts. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. Then, during this time, the wife would undergo what would be called a ceremonial cleansing or a, or, or a mikvah. Uh, she would cleanse herself and make herself ready. What do we do? What is this outward uh, demonstration of our cleansing through Christ? It's baptism. And then the groom would go and he would prepare a place for some time, some unbeknownst time in the wedding tradition. He would be gone preparing a place in his father's house. Usually this would be a chamber uh, inside the house or he would actually build a guest chamber on his father's property or connected to the house. And this would be for the honeymoon with the bride. And he would be gone for an undisclosed amount of time. And during this time, the bride would wait for her groom to come and snatch her unbeknownst. Christ is preparing a place. That's the imagery being used in John 14. That He's going to prepare that bridal chamber in His Father's house. That's what Christ is doing now. He's preparing a place for us to come and be received. During this time, the waiting bride would be consecrated. She'd be ready. She'd be making herself ready. Taking care of herself physically. Hygienically, she'd be preparing herself to serve and to be a wife and a mother, consecrating herself. What is the church doing during its time here on earth prior to the coming of Christ? We are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're being conformed to the image of Christ that we've been judicially declared to have by grace through faith in the atoning death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And then at some time, once this place has been prepared, in the Jewish wedding, what would happen is the bridegroom and his friends would come, often at night. And the bride, would she'd be waiting with her wedding party and her bridesmaids and these virgins and just watching, watching. And the bride with his friends would come at night and they would steal the bride away from her home so that the parents would awake and not know where she is. It was done at night. And oftentimes, the groom and his friends would come and to town and come near to the bride's place of dwelling and they would sound the trumpet, the shofar. And the bridegroom and his friends would steal her away. And then take her where? They would take her to the wedding chamber at the father's house for a time of honeymoon. And in the Jewish wedding, guess how long these, the bride and the bridegroom would spend in the wedding chamber and celebrate with the friends of the bridegroom. Guess how long that time was? Seven days. Very interesting. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. Christ comes and steals His bride. There was a seven-day period in the Jewish wedding in which there was that close fellowship and the wedding was consummated in the wedding chamber and there was that private celebration with the friends of the bridegroom. Seven days. Well, doesn't that neatly fall into God's plan? He comes and gets His church, John 14. There's a period of consummation, seven years, the tribulation. Then what happens? Then after this seven day period in the chamber, the bride and the bridegroom come forth and the marriage is proclaimed publicly. And there is a feast. Isn't that what happens at written about in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that what Christ does when He comes back and declares to the world His marriage and sets up His millennial kingdom? And then after a time of feasting 
which, is pre, which, which points to the millennial kingdom. After a time of the great wedding feast and the great public celebration in the Jewish wedding, what would happen? The, the new bride and the new groom would pack up and they would depart for a new home. Not alongside the Father's house, but a new home in a new place. What happens after that period of millennial bliss on this earth where Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years? We go to a new heavens and a new earth. See how the Jewish wedding fits Christ's relationship with the church? It's Jesus who uses the imagery. We're not forcing this imagery on the text. Jesus uses it Himself in John 14. And if you know what happens in a Jewish wedding and understand that, you read John 14 and understand that Jesus is preparing a place in His Father's house for His bride. He's he's away from her right now. One day He's coming to steal her back for a time of private fellowship and consummation, which in the Jewish wedding was seven days. For us, it'll be seven years. It fits perfectly. Jesus is referring to that rapture when He comes to receive. The same verb that's used to say that one is in the field, one is taken. Two are in the field, one is taken, one's received, and the other is left behind. So I could talk a whole lot more about the Jewish wedding. It's very interesting. And most people don't have a clue about that. But it fits. And there's a reason why Jesus told parables about the bridegroom and the friends of the bride. Who are the friends of the bridegroom? John the Baptist was a friend of the bridegroom. It's the Old Testament saints. They're resurrected too to receive new bodies. They celebrate during that time in heaven. And then the party comes and declares the marriage publicly. Publicly. There's one more thing that's worth mentioning, and I want to try to do this very quickly. There is a certain consensus among some Christians that the tribulation, they believe in a rapture, they believe that it happens before the second coming, but they would argue that it would happen in the middle of the tribulation, so that we're going to have to endure some of the judgment. But during the middle of the tribulation... They would say the rapture takes place. Well, where does this come from? Well, Paul calls the trump of God or the trumpet sound the last trump. It's called the last trump in... uh, That's the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, right? 1 Thessalonians calls it the trump of God. But 1 Corinthians 15 calls this trump... uh, the last trump. Let me make sure. Yeah, the last trump. And so they'd say, well, the last trump means the last trumpet. So that has to be the last of the seven trumpet judgments. And that takes place in the middle of the tribulation. So the rapture must be in the middle of the tribulation. And so the assumption is made that the last trump, or as it's called, the trump of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, must be the seventh trumpet judgment of Revelation. Once again... I would say you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Because the seventh trumpet judgment isn't the last trumpet. Go back to Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. Jesus says that there will be a trumpet sounded when He comes back to set up His kingdom. So the seventh trumpet can't be the last trumpet. There's another trumpet already mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. 
Revelation was written after 1 Thessalonians, maybe close to 40, 50 years later. Would Paul have been referring to a seventh trumpet judgment? To a prophecy that had not yet been uttered? Into a book not yet written? And then would the Thessalonians have understood what he was talking about? No. The last trump is not a reference to the trumpet judgment. It's not. There's no reason to think it is. But here's what I find interesting. What is the last trump? What is the trump of God that we will hear when Christ comes for His church in the rapture? Well, I think there's at least five possible meanings, and I think in a way all five of them are true. And it has to do not only with the, the trumpet and how it was used in Paul's day, but the importance of the Feast of Israel and how the rapture is a fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Well, what could it mean? It could, the last trump could just simply be a reference to Christ's voice. In Revelation 4, His voice that calls John to heaven is like a trumpet. And in a sense, the rapture is the last spoken words of Christ to the church on the earth. That's His last commandment. Come up. And so in a sense, His voice is the last trump. Trump being Christ speaking directly to His church while they're here on earth in their natural bodies. The rapture, the voice of Christ is the last time that happens. So it could just be a reference to His voice. But if you study the Roman use of trumpets, which Paul makes reference to in 1 Corinthians, he uses military terminology to make reference to the use of the trumpet. and He talks about how a trumpet, if it gives an uncertain sound, men will not know that they're being called to battle. That's in the very same book he refers to the last trump. And the Romans had a use of a trumpet. Uh, it was called the classicum. The trumpet was used to summon people when the emperor was present. It's interesting because the trump, the last trump is the trump of God, 1 Thessalonians 4. There was another trump of God back in Exodus 19. That trumpet that sounded. And who was gathered in Exodus 19 to come and, and, and visit with God? Israel. Gathered where? Mount Sinai. There was a trump of God sounded at Mount Sinai. Men were gathered to see the law, to hear the law, the ministry of death. Well, the trump of God for the rapture is the same purpose. The people of God are gathered, but not for the ministry of death, but for the ministry of immortality. It has an opposite person. It's kind of similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he contrasts the first Adam, Adam, with the last Adam, Christ. And so what we could have here is him distinguishing between the first trump of God that called men to assembly before the law and the second trump of God which calls men to assembly for redemption from the curse of the law. And the ultimate redemption from the curse of the law is in the resurrection of the body. And so we've got that classicum use, that summoning. And so in that sense, the rapture would be the last trump. Because the first trump of God was at Sinai, the last trump of God would be at the rapture. Then you had the Roman war trumpet, which was called the Sopix. This war trumpet was used for signals and commands. The Greeks, the Jews, the Romans, they all used it. 
The first trumpet and series of trumpets thereafter were used to assemble troops to battle, to an ambush, to pursuit, to follow after the slain. But the last sopix was sounded as to call, to call the troops to reassemble and return from battle. So the first sopix in war was to go to battle and then there would be a series of other trumpets for retreats or pursuits or whatever, but the last sopix had a distinctive sound and it was calling the troops home. A return from battle. A regathering. It's interesting that the Jews, um, when they used this sopix or this last trumpet to gather the troops to return from battle, they would write, Gathering of God on these trumpets. It was inscribed in Hebrew, the gathering of God. So the last trumpet in warfare to bring the troops home was referred to by the Jews as the gathering of God, the last trumpet of warfare. Now it's very interesting that just before Paul says the last trump in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the military use of a trumpet in chapter 14. I've already referenced this. In chapter 14, verse 8, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So Paul's already used mil a military trumpet to make a point. So it makes sense that the military imagery is already there. Why wouldn't he use it again in 1 Corinthians 15? And if that's the case, the last trump is the last trumpet of battle. The last trumpet of uh, of warfare. He has that in mind. So what is that last trump? It's the trumpet sounded to call the troops home. What is the rapture? It's calling the troops home. We're, we're battling in this world. It's warfare, trial and tribulation. And then the last trump calls us home. The sopics. The Romans also had another use of a trumpet. The trumpet was used to start and to end a guard's watch. So these guards would have watchman's duties. And one trumpet would sound the beginning of the watch, and one trumpet would sound the end of the watch. The last trumpet was the end of the watch. It signified the time of the evening, evening meal. The guards were to step down and pack up. The watch was over, and they were to come gather and eat. Throughout the New Testament, the church is exhorted to watch. That command to watch is given to the church and it's often found in context containing military terminology. So what would the last trump be in that sense? It would be the end of the church's watch in the world. Time to come home. Time to come home and eat. Your watch is done. What is the church doing now in the world? It's a testimony of the gospel. It's a watch in the world. Its presence with the indwelling Holy Spirit restrains evil. But there's a day coming when the last trump will sound and the church will be told that the watch is over. Come home. Come home and eat. And the watch will be over in the world. And so you've got all of these interesting imageries of trumpets. Any of these could be true, or all of them can be true. What is the last trump? It's the last time Christ speaks to the church in their natural bodies on earth. His voice. It's the classicum, the gathering, the last trump of God, the first at Sinai, the last which is gathering people to the ministry of redemption and resurrection. It's the, it's the sopics, the last trumpet of warfare, calling the troops home. The last trump is the, the last trumpet for the soldier's watch to, to call him home. 
from his time of watch. But I tend to think that this last reference is really what's going on here. I believe this last trumpet is a reference to the Jewish Feast of Trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish civil new year. In the Jewish calendar, there are actually two new years. There's a religious year that begins with the month of Nisan in the spring. It it signifies what day in Jewish history? When did God tell them to start their calendar over? It was the day they were what? Brought out of what? Egypt. The religious calendar begins in the spring. The first feast, the Feast of Passover, is on the 14th of Nisan. But the civil year begins in October, the month of Tishri, the first day of the month of Tishri. And Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets that signifies the civil year. Now where did this come from? The Jewish tradition says that the, new, the civil new year began on the day that Adam and Eve were created. That God created the world at that time. And that's paying homage to the civil year is based on creation. The religious year is based on the exodus. But the Feast of Trumpets is one of the seven Jewish feasts that are laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus 23, God gives Israel a calendar. And they are to order everything they do around these seven feasts. And what I find very interesting is that in these seven feasts, God in essence sums up His entire plan of redemption for mankind. You see, Christ actually fulfills these feasts. We know this because Paul makes reference to the feast when he's talking to the Corinthians and explains how Christ fulfills some of them. And Christ doesn't just fulfill them, He fulfills them in order. And I believe the Feast of Trumpets is fulfilled when Christ comes for His church. Now, I could get into a long discussion about what each of these feasts are and how Christ has fulfilled them and how He has fulfilled and will fulfill them in order. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. However, what I believe... What was the Feast of Trumpets? It was in the time of harvest. And the Jewish people would be working in the fields. And the Feast of Trumpets... When that trumpet was blown, it was a series of trumpets. The last one was the longest and the largest, the, 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 the loudest and the longest blast. It was called the Tekiah Gedola. When that was blown, that signified that the man in the field was to drop what he was doing and immediately send up, they were, the, the people were to immediately pack their goods and ascend up to Jerusalem for a time of rest and fellowship. And it was to demonstrate with the people that nothing in this world was of any, had more importance than God calling His people. And so the Jewish people, it didn't matter what they were involved in. They may have been doing some business transactions. They may have been in the field. They may have, may have been in the middle of some kind of family event. They would drop what they were doing in a, at the sound of the Tekiah Gedola and ascend up to Jerusalem. Now think of that imagery in ancient times. When Israel dwelled and there were strangers in the land. Think about this imagery. A Jewish man and an Arab man working side by side in the field. And then on the first of Tishri, the trumpet would blow. And that Jewish man would drop his tools and head up to Jerusalem, and the Arab man would be left standing right there, wondering what in the world's going on. Now think of the imagery Jesus uses with the coming of the Son of Man. One, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. 
The rapture is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. And the last trump that Paul is referring to here, the trumpet of God, is the Tekiah Gedola. The trumpet that calls the people of God to stop what they are doing and to come up into His presence. It's funny because in 1 Corinthians... The same book where God, Paul calls it the last trump. In chapter 5, he tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover and unleavened bread, the first two feasts. In chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection, he shows that Christ is the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits, which is the third feast. And now he makes reference to the last trump. He's already referred to three of the Jewish feasts in the book of 1 Corinthians. It makes sense to me. Christ has already been shown to have fulfilled Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. It only makes sense that this last trump would have been a reference to the Feast of Trumpets and is a declaration of how Christ fulfills that. Paul must have already taught the Corinthians about these feasts because he alludes to them in 1 Corinthians without even explaining them. So if they didn't know what he was talking about, this stuff would make no sense. Paul taught them about the seven feasts. And it's interesting. I want to encourage you to go study Leviticus chapter 23 this week. I know I'm running a little long, but I wanted to get through this. There are seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. Four of them are in the spring, and the last three are in the fall. The first one is Passover. Nisan 14th and 15th. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He fulfilled it. He was crucified on that feast. Then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began for seven days and lasted. It began the day of Nisan 15, the day after the Passover, and it lasted for seven, seven days. Jesus fulfilled this when He was buried. He wasn't buried for seven days, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread signified His burial, His death. And then during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that seven-day feast, during that, the third day, uh, was the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus fulfilled first fruits on the third day of his burial when he rose up from the dead. And that's what Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Fifty days after the Feast of First Fruits in the month of Sivan is the Feast of Pentecost. What happened during the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1 or chapter 2? The Holy Spirit came down. That actually happened on Pentecost. When was Pentecost? 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. So it was 50 days after Christ's resurrection. Well, what does that tell us? Luke tells us that Jesus showed Himself alive after His resurrection for 40 days before He ascended to heaven. That means that the time between Jesus' ascension and the time of the Holy Spirit was 10 days. It was 10 days from Jesus leaving the disciples and then telling them to wait at Jerusalem. And then the Spirit came fulfilling the Feast of Pentecost. Well, then you have the entire summer and there are no more feasts until you get into the fall. The fifth feast is the Feast of Trumpets. It was a signal for the workers to cease harvesting and come into the presence of God for worship. This would take place sometime in September, October, depending on the lunar calendar. This is fulfilled, I believe, in the Feast of Trump. I mean, in the rapture. It could be very well that the rapture actually takes place on the Feast of Trumpets for the particular year in which Christ decides to come back. That's on the first day of Tishri. Then you have the, the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. 
The church, this is not fulfilled in the church because the church doesn't owe any atonement to God. The church is not innocent, but it's been exonerated by the sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What therefore is Yom Kippur? In the feast, Israel was to afflict itself. Afflict itself, weep and mourn for its sin. And then the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur would make atonement. Yom Kippur, the feast of atonement, is fulfilled in the tribulation when Israel is afflicted. Afflicted. And it comes to a place where they see their sin. And then what happens? The high priest comes forth and shows himself, Jesus Christ, as Messiah at His second coming. And all Israel at that point in time is saved. Yom Kippur is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And then the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. That takes place can be in October, September, October. Again, this is a lunar calendar. And so I, you know, every so often they would throw a 13th month in there to catch up with the solar calendar. But the Feast of Tabernacles was to help Israel remember when God, not only they dwelt in tents in the wilderness, but when God dwelt with them and went with them. He went as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He walked with them through the wilderness. And this was to call Israel to come up to Jerusalem and to dwell in tents and to recall God's dwelling with them as they passed out of Egypt through the wilderness. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled in Jerusalem during what? The millennial reign of Christ when Christ is actually here. Emmanuel, living and dwelling with His people. I tend to think Christ would have been born on the Feast of Tabernacles because the first coming was a shadow of a second coming to come. And so it makes sense that maybe Christ would have been born on the Feast of Tabernacles, September, October, which means He would have been conceived around December 25th and the conception is the real miracle. That's when God became man because if man is a human life when he's conceived, then God became man when he was conceived, not when he was born. The birth was just a stage, an early uh, uh, event in the stage of human life. And so all of these feasts show God's plan and purpose for redemption. And I believe the Feast of Trumpets is, the fulfillment, is fulfilled in the rapture and therefore the last trump is a reference to that last Tekiah Gedola of the Feast of Trumpets that will be sounded and the church will drop what it's doing and ascend up to worship in the presence of God. The rapture is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. The last trump, it's not the last trumpet judgment. It's not a mid-tribulational rapture. The last trumpet. What is it? It's a classicum of assembly, the assembly of the saints. It's a sopix calling the troops home. It's a sopix signaling the end of the soldier's watch in the world. It's the Tagaya Gadola saying, drop what you're doing. Nothing else matters. Come up to the mount of God and be gathered in worship. All right, I wanted to get through that. That's great. I could talk more about the feast. I think it's really amazing. And it's a great way to show Jewish people when you're sharing the gospel how Jesus Christ not only fulfilled specific prophecies, but He's fulfilled, he's fulfilled these feasts. And so it's, I've enjoyed watching Dylan and Ricky bridge to the gospel with Leviticus chapter 23 and show how God was showing the plan of Messiah in the feast, and Jewish people understand this. And then to show how Jesus actually fulfilled it, the first, the first four, and the last three will be fulfilled by Him as well. 
And so there you have it, folks. We are waiting for the rapture of Christ for His church. Antichrist will come. Tribulation will come. But that's not what we're to be worried about. Paul said, don't be worried about that stuff. We're looking for the gathering. The gathering of God. And so, right here in Revelation 4, when John is caught up, he's caught up at the very place that this happens in God's plan. The fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Next time we're going to get into the throne room and we're going to see what the church is actually doing, what it's actually seeing, what is actually transpiring there in heaven as the seals are broken and the tribulation sweeps onto the planet earth. Anybody get to read that paper I um, pointed you guys to? What did you all think about that? I mean, that's kind of old. I was, I was a lot younger and I think I could elaborate on some of it, but it makes a pretty good argument for why we believe what we believe. and A lot of people reject the doctrine of the rapture because they look at society today and they say, well, you know, all the people that believe in the rapture, all these left-behind people are a bunch of dead Southern Baptists who aren't doing nothing. They ain't preaching the gospel and they're so worldly. So the doctrine must be wrong. Typical reactionary theology. A lot of faithful brothers I preach with, that's their attitude. Well, just because there's a bunch of dead Southern Baptists that aren't living for the Lord and believe in a pre-trib rapture doesn't mean the doctrine's wrong because there's plenty of solid believers of various denominations, many Southern Baptists, many Independent Baptists, whatever, who aren't sitting around doing nothing, who aren't sitting on their hands, who aren't looking for the rapture and are going to the ends of the world preaching the gospel. And so we don't need to be having reactionary theology. Somebody said to Ricky once... Uh, you know, one of the reasons I don't believe in this rapture doctrine is because all the people that believe it sit around and don't do nothing for the kingdom of God. And Ricky just, just stared at him and was like, do I do nothing? He said, well, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I believe that's what the Scriptures teach. And this person who said that just stood there dumbfounded and didn't know what to say because they knew Ricky is one who's traveled to the ends of the earth and hazards his life for the gospel time and time again in far-off corners that most of these self-righteous street preachers wouldn't be willing to go. And so it was like he didn't even have to argue the point. He just said, well, I believe in that doctrine. And that kind of shut that person up. So I thought it was pretty funny, but... We don't need to have reactionary theology. We can rest in the blessed hope of the believer. I'm real sorry that I, I went a little long. I just felt like I needed to finish so that we could um, you know, get a fresh, fresh place to start next week. So, Anyway, any questions? Um, I'll pray over the meal and, and then we can eat. Father, thank You for this day. Lord, we thank You for the amazing truth of Your Word, Lord. Not just in the New Testament, but how all of these things in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ, pointed to Your plans and purpose for, for the ages and for the redemption of man, for Your plan and purpose with Israel and the church. Lord, help us to watch and be ready like that bride, Lord, who was sanctifying herself and waiting for her groom to come. It's steal her in the night, Lord. We long that You would sound that to Kaya Gadola, Lord. We pray that You would come and take us home, Lord. Take us to that chamber that You've prepared for us, Lord. Take us, Lord, and fulfill what You've promised. We look for You to come and receive us unto Yourself, Lord. But until that day, may we not be like those foolish virgins, not uh, trimming our wicks and making sure we have enough oil, Lord. May we occupy, may we be uh, preparing ourselves by obeying Your commands, Lord, until that day. You come. May it be today. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, uh, bless the food you've given us. Bless our fellowship, Lord. Lord, that is a ministry you've given us in this world until you come, is to fellowship one with another, to comfort one another, to sacrifice one for another. May we be that for each other in this church and for the brethren, both here at home and abroad. In Jesus' name, amen.